Ben, Ben Avery here from the Comic Book Time Machine. Just to uh, quickly remind you that these following episodes were actually taken from a larger episode and cut up into more easily indexed, smaller portions. So there are going to be times when I talk about, you know, next in this episode or previously in this episode, because originally these were released as long episodes that covered a single month of the comics. A long time ago, on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, exploring Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy during the Star Wars period. Episode 35, starting the January 1978 cover date with Star Wars number 7. Hello, time travelers. It's Ben. Ben Avery. Here once again to talk about just my little corner of geeky, geeky, geekiness when it comes to my appreciation and love of comic books. I am a comic book writer. I am a comic book reader. I am a comic book collection. I should note that my comic book collection is not worth anything. I might be able to find someone who would be willing to take a handful of my comics off of my hands for, you know, what, 37 cents, something like that, so that they can then drop them into a dollar bin. But really, my comic book collection comes down to it's stuff that I like. And the stuff that I like isn't the stuff that's really worth much. And part of the reason the stuff that I like isn't really worth much is because I like weird things. And part of the reason is because I like things that are cheapish. And so since I'm not buying anything that costs a lot, I'm not really you know, going to get a return on my investment when my investment is not much of an investment. For example, my John Carter collection is an omnibus. And that omnibus, I was just talking with Daniel and Matt earlier today about the John Carter omnibus and how it was really cheap when I bought it. I believe that I purchased that omnibus for, I think it was $25. And, you know, the cover price on that thing is what I probably 75 to a hundred. I can't remember right now, but the, the, the point being, I got it on sale. I got it because it was cheap. I am so, so glad that I bought it because it is so far has been really, really good. I haven't, uh, obviously reviewed the latest issue for this episode, but up until this point, it's been really, really good. Great, great return on my investment. Another example, Human Fly. I went ahead and got the Human Fly issues because they really weren't that expensive. I'm finding out why they aren't that expensive, uh, unfortunately. But again, return on my investment here. So far, I've had a fun time talking about them, so I can accept that. But I buy reader copies. I buy copies that are torn. I buy copies that are beaten. I buy copies that are really, you know, they're not collectibles. 
their their books. They're meant to be read. And the copies that I buy have been read and are going to be read. Now, that's not to say I don't have comics that I haven't read. And some of them might even be polybagged. I just haven't gotten to them yet. <laughs> so all that to say that I enjoy comic books and I am enjoying this experiment. And what is this experiment? Well, if you're just joining me for the first time, I am reading through the Marvel licensed comic books that Marvel published starting in 1977 with the release of Star Wars. Now, I did go a little bit uh, past that point when I was going traveling back in time to find, you know, 2001 and some of these other books that started before Star Wars. For example, John Carter, which started the month before Star Wars came out, uh, the Star Wars comic book, that is, came out. And so here I am. I have... They published Star Wars from 1977 to 1986. There's some titles in there that I am excited about because I get to reread them, like Rom and Micronauts. I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm excited to get to them. Uh, there's other titles that I've read some of them, and I'm really excited to get into those titles and actually finish reading them. Uh, Battlestar Galactica, for example, and uh, Godzilla is actually that's another one that I want to re that I'm rereading right now uh, actually right now and then there's some that are brand new like the human fly I know nothing about the human fly all I know is it fits into what I'm doing because it's in this time period between 77 and 86 and it was licensed it was licensed not from a movie not from a book it was licensed from a real guy a real stunt man who went out and did stunts for charity but that's what it is and so that's the experiment. And so for this month, cover dated January of 1978, is Star Wars number seven, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, number eight, Godzilla, number six, Human Fly, number five. And then there's some material from a, a fan magazine that Marvel put out called Friends of Old Marvel. And that material is about John Carter. And Marvel published it this month, which if you want to set your time machines to actually get those comic books when they hit the stands, well, you're going to set your time machine for October of 1977. And again, I, I might have mentioned this before. I love when things happen in October. Now, I probably said it before because I read some books that had the cover date of October of 1977 and so when i would get a comic and had a cover date of october that would excite me because it was like it was for me because that's when my birthday is however uh now that i'm getting a little more into the the you know the inside baseball stuff here with comic books and how they were released back then uh finding out you know that they were released the co the cover date from what i understand is the date that it was supposed to be taken off the stands and so it was put on the stands in October 1977 and would have been there for a few months until January of 1978 when they would allow returns by stripping off the cover and sending the cover back. Uh, that That's me talking from my understanding of the situation, not me talking from uh, an intimate knowledge of the situation. Anyway, now that I know that January 1978 was actually October 1977, it's it's. I get two months of excitement about my birthday and you know, it's okay. Um, I'm an adult. I'm a grown man. I still like things like things that happen 
when I have a birthday, and you have characters who share my name, like Obi-Wan Kenobi, who's dead in Star Wars. At least when I was a kid, he was dead almost the entire time that Star Wars existed. But still, I had that connection. So what we're going to do is, uh, as usual, we're going to start with Star Wars, because that's the impetus for doing this. And then we're going to end with John Carter, because that has been what's been great every month. I have not been disappointed by John Carter. There might have been some moments where I was scratching my head. There might have been some plot holes where I just kind of said, come on, John Carter, really? But for the most part, it has been a home run. So I start with Star Wars, I end with John Carter, and in this case, that leaves Human Fly and Godzilla in between. And Human Fly will probably be what I read next after Star Wars, because honestly, it can get kind of low. Now, I do have some feedback about Human Fly number five, which I will get to when we talk in the, the bullpen bulletin area of this podcast, but... Um, yeah, human fly, even when he's good, he's not really good. I'm going to save it for when I actually do talk about human fly. So for now, we're going to start talking about Star Wars issue number seven, which is finally taking us past the movie and into original stories. And into some of the first, if not actually the first, expanded universe of the Star Wars franchise. At last, beyond the movie, beyond the galaxy, that is the header where it used to say on the cover, the greatest space fantasy film of all. Now it says... Like I just said, at last, beyond the movie, beyond the galaxy. And all I can say is, at last, finally, my sentiments exactly. I have read through a lot of comics that I would not have read uh, to get to this point in time. Now, don't get me wrong. I am glad that I did. Uh, they were fun comics, and honestly, even when they were bad, uh, they weren't bad, 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 where I was just pounding my head against the ground, except for a little bit of Human Fly, uh, and I discovered the Kirby 2001, I discovered John Carter, Warlord of Mars, by Marv Wolfman, I mean, who knows what it's going to be like after he's gone from the series, because I know he didn't go the entire series, who knows what it'll be doesn't matter, though, because at this point, I have discovered some really interesting and fun materials, and I hope that you have, too, along with me. If nothing else, you 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 know how I feel about the just wacky Kirby 2001 stuff that was going on, and the exciting and exhilarating John Carter, Warlord of Mars stuff that was going on. But here we are. This is why I started doing this experiment in the first place. It was to get to the new stuff. The Star Wars comics that I read to get to this point, one through six, I know that story. I know that story backward and forward. I know that story intimately in many different forms. I've read it in comics before um, the manga, Dark Horse manga. I actually read that before I read... 
this here. Um, I have read it in book form and I have read it in storybook form. I have heard it and read it in, <laughs> and this is going to uh, date me, but you know, if I, let's face it, if I went to see this movie in the theater, which I did, I'm, I'm old. Okay, I'm, I'm not a youngster anymore. But anyway, I experienced this movie, heard it and read it in a record and storybook set. The music from Star Wars that really stuck with me. Part of that came from listening to that record over and over and over again. So that story that I just read through by Roy Thomas and Howard Chaikin and all the other artists who got involved, that story, to be quite honest, I'm very familiar with. This is why I wanted to do this experiment was to get to the expanded universe stuff that it's not canon anymore. Disney has gone and said, I don't even know if this stuff ever was canon as far as that goes. I mean, I know the books were and there was this, you know, database that some chap was in, you know, in charge of him. I don't know why I just called him a chap. I was going to call him a fella. That's not much better. But uh, anyway, there was a database. There was, you know, all the books were basically canon except for some, you know, alternate stories and, and that kind of thing. And now all that stuff was just wiped clean and they're starting out with just the movies and I think Clone Wars. And then uh, when I say Clone Wars, I mean the animated series that was 3D uh, computer generated instead of the two dimensional um, incredible series that they did. But. Yeah, I wanted to get to this stuff. I had a collection of Star Wars comics, but I maybe had, I think, less than 10%, let's say. I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing that right now. Bottom line, we're here, and I'm so, so excited. So this story here, the cover says, like I said, it lasts beyond the movie, beyond the galaxy, but it also says all new Han Solo and Chewbacca on a world the law forgot. So, okay, we've got Han Solo, we've got Chewbacca, but we probably don't have the Empire. Uh, Han Solo is shooting a gun that it's not his usual gun, but you know, based on what we're seeing here, we've got Chewbacca holding uh, alien by the collar. We've got Chewbacca holding another alien who's unconscious and he's holding him by the front of his shirt, but you know, holding him up off the ground. So he's not able to fall to the ground. There's a wall that's been blasted. It looks like by an explosion. And there's a poster on the wall that says wanted dead or alive Han Solo and Chewbacca, the Wookiee reward. And so it's quite possible. He had to pick that gun up from some other poor old soul. Who's now lying dead in this town that law forgot and he yells to Chewie grab a laser gun Chewie they've got us surrounded as a blast from someone with really poor aim hits the ground right in front of Han Solo and I gotta say this cover is exciting I really really I look at this cover and I think to myself I want to read that story what is going to happen inside this comic now I've been burned before because Star Wars covers up until this point have a habit of uh, about half and half uh, not exactly portraying what's inside the book. And that's not unusual. That's not unusual now. It's not unusual then. Comics are meant to excite you. You are going to, whether you, whether you listen to your mother or not, you judge a book by its cover. 
That's just a part of life. Let's just face it, okay? Now, inside, we do get something similar or close to this because looking at this cover, there's a real Western vibe. You switch out that laser blaster with a six-shooter, take that alien head and turn it into a regular person's head, take Chewy and make him just some big burly dude, and you've got a Western. You know, you don't even need the hats. You recognize this as a Western, and, and we're getting into a Western here. The, the story is a very, well, it's not just inspired by, I was going to say, it's very inspired. It's not just inspired. This is a complete and utter ripoff of a story that, that I know well, because I've seen, again, I've seen this story that I'm about to read here in many different forms. Unfortunately, I don't know if that's to the detriment yet. I will save judgment until I get to the end of this. Um, let's just say the story arc. Uh, but I've seen the story before and I've seen it before in different places. So let's just look at this issue, though, right here. And then we got some I've got some material from Roy Thomas that kind of explains what was going on at this time. But uh, it's a simple story as of, you know, this issue. And it's Han and Chewie leave to pay Jabba the money, you know, that they got from the reward. But they are set on by space pirates. One of those space pirates is Crimson Jack, who takes their reward that they got at the end of the movie. And now with no money to pay Jabba, they choose to lay low in a more outlying out of the way planet than Tatooine was. And when they get to you know the planet they land near a town and when they go in the town they see a priest who's trying to take a body to spacers hill now the body belongs to a, a borg and a, a borg is a half droid half man person <laughs> and you know we learned in the movie people hate droids and when the movie happened we didn't know why people hated droids we find out in the prequel trilogy that the reason they hate droids is because droids were used as an army and they fought a war against them. And eh, that works. That works. But, um, the people hate droids. This guy is half human, half droid. So Han and Chewie help defend the priest and then they help him transport the body. And as they transport the body, they have to fight. Now they're doing this for money. Let's, Let's keep things straight here. I mean, these guys are still mercenaries. They're doing this for money. Uh, but when the Bantha that is dragging the Borg's body, which is a heavy body because it has mechanical parts in it, is killed, Chewie carries the coffin. And it's it's a great moment. And then afterwards, they retire to a cantina. Um, they're celebrating, drinks on the house. Han meets a girl. Chewie meets two girls. And Han, he's with the girl. He turns around to check on Chewie. When he turns back, the woman is gone. And there are three men there who say that they have a proposition. And their exact words are... We have a proposition to put forth to you, honored off-worlder. It is a most agreeable proposal... We assure you, unless, of course, you have an unfortunate aversion to dying. Next issue is Trouble in Paradise. 
So let's let's start some analyzing here. Uh, first, at last, I already talked about the my excitement about the at last part beyond the movie. Yes, we're going beyond the movie with the story beyond the galaxy. Not quite sure what that's meant to mean, but here we are beyond the galaxy. And, you know, I do have some nitpicks. Um, to, one is that Han Solo says he needs to get back to Jabba on Dantooine. You know, I just got to say, uh, Jabba the Hutt's on Tatooine. Uh, Dantooine is where Princess Leia said the rebel base was. Uh, by the way, I got those two mixed up all the time when I was a little kid and my older cousin, who was probably my biggest Star Wars fan friend, my biggest Star Wars fan enabler. Um, he would correct me about that. He also would correct me that it's not lifesaver. It's lightsaber. You know, what's he going to do? Throw a piece of candy at Darth Vader with his light. If he's going to get out his lifesaver. Yeah, that's like my, my cousin actually is a really, really nice guy. But um, we, we did, you know, have fun and joke around. And um, me being the younger one, I was usually at the disadvantage. Anyway, <clears throat> there's a lot of exposition going on. <laughs> there's a lot of just describing what you see on the page. Um for example, when when uh, Crimson Jack comes, it, it it just it describes him. It says striding through all the din and clamor, a red bearded man in black. Well, we can see him. He's right there, front and center in the panel. He's a red bearded man in black. Now his people, it's an interesting crew. Um, he has there's a stormtrooper there. There's people, in, there's a pirate looking guy who actually has like the pirate do-rag kind of thing going on. There's a guy with a patch over his eye. Um, it's an interesting crew that he has. And I'm, I'm curious. I want to learn more about this crew. However, uh, we don't get much more about them in this issue. I do think we will get more about them because of what this story is based on. This story is based on the Western, the Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent Seven is based on the samurai movie, Seven Samurai. And you may have also heard uh, or seen rather various other versions of this. Um, most notable would probably be A Bug's Life. And the basic idea behind all of those is that you have someone who is living in a town that's being oppressed. Oh, how could I have forgotten the sci-fi version of this from Battle Beyond the Stars, uh, which is ripping off Magnificent Seven while also simultaneously trying to rip off Star Wars. And so actually, it is quite possible that the people making Battle Beyond the Stars, I want to say it was Roger Corman, but I might be wrong about that. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie. The people who made that movie, it's possible that they said, hmm, George Lucas based Star Wars on the Japanese movie Hidden Fortress. There's a whole lot of Hidden Fortress in Star Wars. And is it possible for us to do the same thing with another Japanese movie like Seven Samurai, which was so good they remade it as a Western. And you have Battle Beyond the Stars. So you have, it's a classic type of story though, where you have this village of people who are weak and who are not warriors, who are not fighters. And so they send one of their own off to go and hire some fighters to protect them from the gang of criminals who is taking their livelihood. And in the case of Magnificent Seven, it's their crops. 
And in the case of Battle Beyond the Stars, it's their crops. <laughs> uh, and in the case of, you know, A Bug's Life, it's really their crops, isn't it? But, uh, oh, okay. Well, anyway, um, <laughs> I have a feeling that this gang that we're seeing here, these pirates, Crimson Jack and his people, I have a feeling that they are going to be the the bad guys in this scenario, that they are going to be coming back because they're the ones who are threatening a small village. Now, I'm spoiling a little bit ahead because we don't get to see the village in this. Uh, we get to see a town, but I there's no reason for me to think that they are in the town that's being oppressed by criminals because there are so many people with guns and who are willing to fight and not just fight, but try and kill the priest who's going to bury the Borg on, on Spacer's Hill. Now, I knew that this particular story arc was going to be based on the Magnificent Seven. I knew this because of articles that I had read before reading this. I knew this then because also I had a friend, Steve McDonald from Strangers and Aliens, who this stuck out in his mind because of the, the blatant um, inspiration from Magnificent Seven, Seven Samurai. And uh, he considers this, I think we talked about this in, in great ripoffs. Anyway, <clears throat> I knew that that's where we were going with this story. However, as I was reading it, I thought, oh, they're ripping off another movie very, very closely because I remembered another Western. And for some reason in my mind, it was Clint Eastwood who was in this Western as the guy who comes and helps uh, an undertaker or someone to to bury someone in in Boot Hill because they they needed to do that and they were they weren't going to let them the people of the town weren't going to let him bury that the person there and I'm thinking to myself oh my goodness they ripped off two westerns well then I realized actually the western I'm thinking is Magnificent Seven. <laughs> And it's that's the the scene where you get to see uh, Ewell Brenner and I uh, I think Steve McQueen um, come together. They ride a wagon up the hill and they are shooting it off. You know, and they're they're so good. You know, and this is where we first see how good they are. And their first you know the first time we see them together and and see their relationship. So this. I am really curious if this is just going to be ripping off that movie beat by beat. Now, the three people uh, who come and visit Han Solo there, they, they're unassuming. They look like they're peaceful dudes. Uh, they kind of have bowl cuts for haircuts and they're wearing robes and you know, they're using very big words, the preposition to put forth to you. It's a most agreeable proposal unless you have a aversion to dying. Again, you know, I'm wondering just how deep does this ripoff go? And I, I have to throw this out, too, though. As much as I'm kind of laughing because I can't believe how much this ripoff is happening here, uh, how much they're just stealing that Roy Thomas is just stealing from an existing story. I look here and there's just something primal 
about this. There's just something really, I don't know, the, the fighting, what they're fighting for, the fact that a priest is having to fight just to give a man a decent burial, and he's fighting against odds that are completely out of his favor, and because he's he's honorable, and he wants to give this person the the respect that is due to a life form. And then you have Han Solo and Chewbacca come into the rescue and they come and they fight. Now they're fighting for money, but again, there's just something primal of about them putting their lives on the line for a dead man and for a bag of money. <laughs> uh, Another another nitpick though is that you know they have they have the whole money problem. They're hiding out because they don't have any money. They're doing the job because they don't have any money. Then they go into the cantina and drinks are on the house. I mean that's not something that someone who has money problems, especially money problems that put them in the sights of a dangerous walrus humanoid gangster, as we saw in I think is issue two of of the Star Wars adaptation. But um. Yeah, I, I just that that's kind of silly. Another thing is kind of silly that just this comes down to just not being thoughtful and writing the dialogue, maybe. But um, they walk in and they see and recognize just by looking at the building that there's a cantina in the center of town. And then after they help get the priest to the burial site, they have to ask directions back to the cantina. And they just walked away from the spot where they could see the cantina, and now they're asking for directions. I. Again, that's a nitpick. Um, one thing that's not a nitpick, but that's kind of, this does stick with me, and that is that the cliffhanger here is kind of dumb. Uh, now, the fact that it is a, it, this is an arbitrary cliffhanger, we get the story to this point, we want to have something that's going to hook the reader to come back, but uh, <laughs> it just I'm not impressed by this cliffhanger. I'm going to read the next issue no matter what, but this cliffhanger, if I was on the fence about Star Wars. If I was a reader back in 1977, say I was a more sophisticated reader than I would have been in 1977, I was like a, well, basically a three-year-old. Um, I would have gotten to that point and not been impressed and probably wouldn't have come back to the comic book. I would have definitely come back to the movie uh, for, you know, whenever the sequel came out. But I, I wouldn't come back to the comic book unless another co a cover really, really grabbed my attention. So <clears throat> beyond that, there's there's also something really cool that's kind of weird. And that's when Han Solo is leaving. He leaves the rebel base. So they're going to go find a new base, but he's he's leaving. And there's this really cool three panel sequence where they are um the, the dialogue says, uh, so set set the coordinates for Tatooine. Next stop, Mos Eisley Spaceport. Though, we've got a few more light years to go before we even cut to hyperspace. And they have this three panels. The dialogue caption box cuts through all three panels, and it's green. And it actually turns out that as you're reading those three panels, the caption box with the dialogue in it is the trail that the Millennium Falcon is leaving. Each of the three panels are three very different places. One has this weird 
planet landscape with dinosaurs on it or dinosaur looking creatures they are kind of roundish. Um, and then the next one has this domed station that you can see plants and part of a, like a city almost. And then there's this uh, space wreck that they pass. And I just read those three panels, not a thing is explained from those three panels, but it looks so interesting. Each of those three panels could be a place where the Millennium Falcon would stop and have some form of adventure. Stop with the uh, the dinosaurs. Obviously, there's there's the there's your adventure right there. They're on a dinosaur planet. There's going to be trouble. The domed world or the domed station. They could land at and you know just have to figure out. Okay, why is there nobody here? But everything looks like it's been tended to with all the plants and stuff. I don't know. And then maybe the mystery of why the space wreck is there. No. We don't know a thing about these three things. It's just thrown out there. Three great ideas for a sci-fi story that could involve our heroes. And they're just throwaway panels. It's really funny. Finally, the last nitpick that I want to give. And again, this is something that happens off and on throughout Star Wars anyway. Uh, even in the movies. They'll throw out something that's basically a human phrase from earth there's no reason that they would know this <laughs> that's where they're talking about the priest as they're coming up and they say hey isn't the buggy dressed like some kind of priest this is han solo obviously not chewbacca can't identify the exact religion i guess i shouldn't have skipped so much sunday school as a kid the sunday school <laughs> they they have sunday school in the star wars galaxy a long time ago in a galaxy far far away um I'll be honest. I mean, that again, I'm nitpicking and I'm kind of nitpicking with a, a wink and a smile. Not about the cliffhanger, but the cliffhanger doesn't matter to me. I'm reading the story anyway. Uh, but they're, they're, they're nitpicks they're, and they're they're charming. They're charming because what we're looking at here is the first foray into new stories with these characters. And George Lucas approved this story. He approved it. Um, he disapproved of it later on, but he did approve it when it was first pitched to him that he wanted to do. They wanted to do a Star Wars story that was Magnificent Seven. So I'm going to actually read some uh, quotes from Roy Thomas as he's talking about what was happening during the time of the story, because this is where he lost interest. And this is where Roy Thomas really des decided that he wasn't his heart wasn't in Star Wars. Now, again, I'm referencing the article that Roy Thomas wrote for uh, his his alter ego magazine, and it was called How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Star Wars with Reservations. And now we're going to get into some of those <laughs> reservations here. Um, <clears throat> he uh, he says in, in the article uh, that he Star Wars open. It was not just a movie. It was a phenomenon. And the way he puts it, he says, quote, and perhaps inevitably, that's when things began to go sour for me personally on the Star Wars front. And he, he had to write a new storyline for this. And as he was figuring this out, he came to understand that they didn't have the details for the sequels yet. And he all he knew was that he was told he couldn't use Darth Vader and he couldn't advance the Luke slash Leia romance. 
So I don't know if that's because they already knew about who Luke and Leia were in relation to each other or if it was because they wanted to wait until the next movie, which is probably what it was. Um, I'm pretty sure that the whole Darth Vader thing comes down to, you know, you, we don't want Luke to meet Darth Vader for the first time on in a comic book. He needs to meet Darth Vader for the first time in the movie because that's the important part to have them battle. Uh, he says, I know for a fact that I was being told the truth when it was said that the events of the sequel were still up in the air. And then he tells a story is kind of funny about uh, a lunch that he had with George Lucas and Mark Hamill was there. And at one point, George began to discuss the fact that they weren't, uh, quote, yet positive how big a part Han Solo would play in the sequel. It was clear to me that there was a chance he might be left almost entirely out of it. At that point, Charlie stopped the conversation short and looked squarely across at Mark. Now, don't you say a word about any of this to Harrison. Mark, clearly ill at ease with the awkward situation, promised not to. No one bothered to swear me to secrecy, but I never ran into Harrison Ford again to spill the beans. And then from there, um, he goes on to talk about how he worked with with George Lucas. He had a conference with him in, in the office, and he said, "The I mentioned my desire to do a magnificent seven type storyline as a follow up to the six original issues." He was very complimentary, saying, "You're the only person who spells Wookie correctly. Everyone else leaves off the final e," and they mostly did back then. And then he talks about uh, explain uh, George Lucas explaining the philosophy of the Force to uh, to Roy Thomas and how he just didn't care about it. He didn't take those any kind of thing like that seriously. And I, I'm actually almost almost considering buying these. But George uh, gave him books uh, from New Age writer Carlos Castaneda, and the books are Tales of Power and the Second Ring of Power which were a big influence on the force. I'm very curious to read those and see. I have a lot of reading I have to do before I can kind of dive into anything like that. But I, you know, I have a little bit of curiosity. I I won't. I, <laughs> I'll just say it right now. I won't, but I'm almost curious enough to do so. So then he goes on then to say, I had chosen the Magnificent Seven route for Star Wars number seven through ten because it made a good starring vehicle for Han and Chewbacca, my favorite characters in the movie. If I couldn't do anything meaningful with Luke and Leia, I figured I'd leave them out of the tale almost entirely and focus on these two space opera gunslingers. In the back of my mind, my always were the Northwest Smith stories by C.L. Moore, rights to which I tried unsuccessfully to license for Marvel not long after Conan the Barbarian became a hit. Now, there is more to the article, but we're going to kind of save that when we get to the actual issues that he's talking about. But it's really interesting to hear his thoughts and to see just, you know what, he really was just going plowing straight ahead and saying, you know what, it's the Magnificent Seven with Han and Chewie being, I guess, two of the seven. Now, the only two we met so far, but that's the way the Magnificent Seven works. There's only two at the beginning and then they all come together. But I have to say, uh, Roy has the Roy Thomas has the right instinct here. Uh, let's take 
two of the more interesting characters and run with them, throw them into another situation. Uh, this is, you know, just the next adventure for Han and Chewie, just like Star Wars, the movie was an adventure for them. And this is it's it's a good instinct to take them and, and put them into the situation. There's some goofiness that goes on getting them there, especially with, you know, losing Jabba's money and then having to get more money. And so they go to an out of the way planet where it, it, there's some goofiness to get them to the point. But that doesn't matter. And when I say goofiness, I don't mean that it's ha ha, silly, silly. I'm rolling my eyes as I read it. I, I mean, it's just plot convenience it's, it's convenient storytelling to get them to these places and honestly maybe it's quite possible that as i read the the next three issues after this that wrap up this story arc it's quite possible that my nitpicks will be gone and i'll have no reason for them this is just the opening this is the prologue getting us to the story that roy thomas wants to tell he has to get us there somehow so for now, I'm closing the book on Star Wars. I'm excited to read the next one. I'm excited because I'm excited. I'm not excited because of the promise of the next story. I'm just excited that there is a next story. So I'm going to stop here talking about Star Wars, and we're going to move on to part two, where we are going to go to an inferno of some sort. A towering inferno? I don't know. There's an inferno involved. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. Next episode, Human Fly, number five.